Good morning. How are you? Good. I have, uh, it's always a challenge for me to teach a topic. Uh oh. I love you guys. This may not be easy for me. This may be short. Um, I have uh, the privilege of dialoguing with you guys this morning about peace, the peace of God. And uh, the topic is huge. Um, and when I tried to condense uh, the biblical understanding of peace and what it's about into a understandable format for us, especially at Christmas time, I found that to be a great challenge. I'll just tell you right now, I have more notes than I possibly get to. Um, but I told the guys when we met for lunch this week that one of the things that I like to do when I study a topic is to get a full grasp on the concept so that I can talk about it from any given angle. Um, and we talk about peace at Christmas time. Um, we, we tend to think of this kind of this idea of the cessation of hostility or this tranquility of mind and Although those concepts are involved in the idea of biblical peace, Jesus came to bring so much more to us at what we call Christmas. Um, and when you understand the concept of peace and what Jesus really did come to do, you understand that when we say he is the prince of peace, what we are saying is he is the prince of salvation. He is actually the prince of reconciliation. Peace means to be made reconciled. So whenever we talk about Jesus as reconciling us to the Father, what we are actually saying is Jesus has come to bring peace to us, to establish peace between us and the Father, a peace that was broken so long ago in the garden. And we're going to talk about that as we go through because there are three main aspects of peace that are, that are offered to us this Christmas season that so many people look forward to and try to establish in their own selves. And they end up self-medicating and doing all kinds of things in order to get peace that can only be had through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so there is no better time to talk about peace than at Christmas because he is heralded as the Prince of Peace. And in John's Gospel, and this is the passage that I'm going to be talking from a lot today, is uh, Jesus said to his disciples just before he went away, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. That's John 14, 27, by the way. Um, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I was... listening to the song this morning, and the song kills me. Does the Father truly love us? He does. And does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. And you have to understand that the whole, understand, the whole picture of Christmas is that. Does the Father truly love us? Jesus. Does our God intend to dwell against with us, again with us? Jesus. And so the whole purpose of Christmas is that line. He loves us and he intends to reestablish again the original intent. He intends to dwell again with us. So in our Revelation class, we've been talking a lot about the seven seals 
and this has pertinence to what I want to talk about today because the one of the seals that was opened, the things that we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the second one, power is given to the red horse to do what? To remove peace from the earth. And um, because of that, we, we understand that... Um, uh, that that describes the character of the world today. And you really don't have to think very hard to, um, to see that we are indeed a peaceless society. And then oftentimes we find ourselves as peaceless people in relationships that don't have any peace in them. And it's because of the situation of the world that we live in, but that's not just in the age that we live in, what we call the church age, but it's been the condition of mankind since the fall in the garden, right? So when you think about it, prior to that, prior to the fall in the garden, Adam was created in perfect peace. He had peace with God. He had peace with his created surroundings. He had peace with the woman who... He was given. And he had peace with himself. However, upon the disobedience, notice several things that happened. First thing, Adam and Eve did what? They hid from God. Second thing they did is they covered their nakedness with foliage. Have you ever wondered why? I'll throw these little tidbits out because I love the scriptures and I love putting things together, but here's tidbit number one. You ever wondered why Adam's, uh, Cain's offering was not acceptable? What did he offer? Fruit of the ground. What did Adam and Eve use to cover themselves? Fruit of the ground. What did Jesus clothe Adam and Eve with? Animal skins. What did Abel offer? So Cain did what his parents did. He tried to reconcile himself under his own efforts. That's a pretty phenomenal picture. Adam blamed his wife for his failure. And in the, in the numeration of consequences of their disobedience, God stated that Eve's pre previous regard for Adam would change, so peace was broken between the man and the woman. And then ultimately both were driven from the garden and we sing this morning, does the Father intend to dwell against, again with us? So from the point that we were driven from his presence, God has worked to bring us back. Additionally, a fourth conflict resulted from the disobedience, one that had specifically redemptive purposes. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what Jesus was referring to when he said, do not think I come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword, because he's not bringing a sword to you. He is waging war on the enemy. And that goes all the way back to the garden. From this point on, we read the effects of the loss of peace throughout historical narrative of Scripture. We see Adam and Eve had two sons. One killed the other. We see the offspring of Cain, Lamech. What does he do? Fathers, uh, follows in his footsteps of his father. And he also is a murderer. We see, East, we see um, Nimrod lived in open rebellion to the Lord. The Tower of Babel, which was a monument to man's defiance to God. The world became filled with violence to such a degree that God had to wipe it out with a flood. 
And then afterwards, after Noah came off the ark, it started all over again. Conflict with the sons of Noah, Esau, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, Egypt and Israel, Israel and Moses, the ten spies, Saul, David, David and Absalom. There were wars, exterminations, murder, rebellious, rebellions, uprisings, enslavements, and the list goes on. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> we live in this society, though, guys. This is the society we live in. In other words, the above-mentioned state of perpetual conflict had been one of the primary characteristics of mankind since the peace of God's original creation was broken by Adam and peace that man has tried to recreate ever since. However, this type of peace is man cannot create it. Man cannot replicate it by his own efforts. And it's usually short-lived whenever he does succeed in some form of it. And the reason is because it's, uh, it's fragile. It's based on fragile circumstances. It's usually based on compromise. And so man's peace is usually short-lived. Because of this truth, there is mixed into the narrative of, of Scripture various eschatological declarations. And we talked about one that looked forward to the one, a new Adam. And Rick spoke about the old and new Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam that comes to reconcile what was lost by the first. And the promise of peace was offered throughout scriptures in such, uh, such as in Isaiah 54.10, the Lord says concerning the future glory of Zion, though the mountains shall be shaken and the hills be re removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace. And of course, we have the great one in Isaiah. Uh, there's another one in Isaiah 55.12 when speaking about the new creation, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And this peace centered on a promised one, a coming one, a Messiah. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, 6-7 declares, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah 53, 4-5 tells us that the promised Prince of Peace, the last Adam will establish for us peace by taking upon the chastisement of our peace. And according to Paul, when the time, so according to Paul, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law and to herald his arrival at that set time. Luke records the angels singing glory to God in the highest heaven and on and peace on those, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This peace was also referred to in the scripture that I just read by Jesus himself. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world does. So the first thing to notice about what Jesus said here in this reestablishment of peace is the first thing it has to it has to is he leaves it with us because there's something in his leaving that is significant and it goes back to what was said in Isaiah the chastisement of our our peace was upon him he was what bruised for our transgressions he was wounded for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him that peace cost 
The peace of God that he offers at this season especially cost God. Remember, Jesus came as the second or last Adam to reclaim the peace lost by the first Adam at the fall. In order to do that, he had to first, he had to first of all succeed where Adam had failed. Thus, Jesus lived a sinless life, withstood the temptation of Satan and the, uh, by the word of God and drove him away. Have you ever wondered why Jesus drove the merchants out of the temple? It just seems like a kind of a weird little passage, right? Jesus goes in, he gets a little bit upset, and he gets these guys out of the temple because he was succeeding where Adam had failed. Adam was intended to drive Lucifer from the garden. He was the overseer of the garden and Lucifer was a usurper in the garden illegitimately and God allowed him to come to Adam and Adam was to drive him out and because Adam failed, Jesus takes up a cat of nine tails in the temple and drives out the money changers. He purified the temple, which was Adam's job. Christ fulfilled it. Pretty cool, huh? Secondly, however, Jesus had to pay the price of Adam's failure. And it is this latter point that is crucial to the reestablishment of our peace because, like we've said, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Thus, the Prince of Peace reestablished our peace by enduring in full the wrath of God. Intended for you and I because of our sin and in so doing offers us peace once again with God. The second thing to notice here is that Jesus... The offering of peace that Jesus gives is different than the world's. And I've already mentioned this, but I wanted to draw a parallel here. Um, I'm not going to get into a gra the grammatical discussion as to whether or not what Jesus is saying is that he's offering a different kind of peace or he's given peace in a different way. I mean, if you read commentaries nowadays, don't get bogged down in that kind of stuff. But what Jesus is saying is, is that the peace that I'm leaving with you is different than what the world has to offer. It cannot be given by the world. There's no way for you to achieve it in and of yourself. This is something that's so apart from you that I have to do it. The world defines peace as a state of tranquility or quiet. Freedom from civil disturbance, a state of security provided by law, freedom from external turmoil, um, a state or period of mutual concord between governments as, a, as the opposite of war. Biblical peace, however, um, is sometimes is used, I'm sorry, let me, let me read that again. Biblical, biblically, though, the word is sometimes used in several of the above-mentioned forms the Hebrew word for peace, however, actually carries the notions of, listen to this, of totality, of completeness, of fulfillment, wholeness, and harmony. Those are key words of meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and wholeness. All of which we lost in the garden. The biblical word in the Hebrew means those things. In the cosmic order, man was at harmony. He knew his place. He knew what his tasks were. His tasks were purposeful. They were not uh, toil. Because of who he was and his identity was drawn from his creator. He didn't have to find his identity and by what he did and tried to find some kind of 
fulfillment in his efforts, in his own efforts, because his fulfillment and his purpose and meaning were constant because they were in the unchanging, immutable character of his creator. And once that relationship was broken, what do we do now? We try to find our identity in what we do. To try to find our fulfillment in our accomplishments, which is exactly the opposite of what we were intended to do. Our fulfillments were to find meaning and a purpose in who we are. Because we are in the Prince of Peace. Does that make sense? So it's backwards. Additionally, because peace is the ultimate end of God's covenant, righteous, uh, covenant, righteousness or fidelity to the covenant is often directly linked to peace. It is important to note here that the peace lost by the first Adam has this meaning and function, this completeness and wholeness, and this harm, harmonious relational order. We now struggle because all of that is lost. I'm jumping down here because I'm going to run out of time, so... The difference between peace the world offers and the peace that God offers are these, and I'll sum it up. The world's peace is fleeting and circumstantial. The peace Jesus gives is secure and unchanging, being based on his immutable or unchanging personhood. The world's peace is often based on compromise. Will you settle with me? Yeah, I'll do this and you do that. And you often have to give up certain things in order to establish peace. The peace that Jesus gives, however, is completely based on his absolute character and his unchanging word. The world equates peace with the removal of restraint, whereas the peace that Jesus gives depends on complete submission to him. That's, that's a very key thing to understand. The world is telling you that peace comes by having no moral restraints of sacrificing and get ridding, getting rid of all boundaries. And the exact opposite is true of biblical peace. It is to submit yourself wholly and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. The peace of the world does not give, uh, the, the peace of the world does not give purpose or meaning, whereas the peace that Jesus gives restores purpose and meaning. The world's peace is usually defined as the absence of conflict and the peace that Jesus gives remains unchanging in the midst of conflict. The world's peace is nothing more than just an illegitimate counterfeit offered as a replacement to the peace that we lost when sin entered the world through Adam. And as I've said, we've tried so hard to reestablish that peace for ourselves and in our own lives. But Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, not the world's. It's my peace that I leave with you. And as we have said, Jesus, who is the second and last Adam, came to earth on that day to restore what was lost. Also, we have noted that the world's peace in the New Testament. Oh, I, I, I missed that. Let me say this. The peace in the New Testament, the word peace in the New Testament also has to do with reconciliation and is directly used in many instances for a replacement word for salvation. What do we say in church? We talk a lot about he comes to reconcile us. What does reconcile mean? To establish peace. That's what Jesus came to do. That was the goal of Jesus. Does our Father intend to dwell again with us in peace? Right now he cannot until we say yes to him and then we can move into that relationship with him.
Jesus came to redeem by restoring peace, and this is done in three specific areas. We have peace now with God, and that was what was broken in the garden, right? What happens? Jesus, God shows up in the garden after, the, after Adam and Eve fall. What's the first thing they do? Run and hide. Did they ever do that before? No. Why? Something's amiss. Something's wrong. Doesn't take a whole lot of science to understand when something's amiss in our lives. When children do something wrong, that they know they've done something wrong, and the dad or mom enter the room, what's the first thing you see with a kid? Adam and Eve. <laughs> Duck and cover. Or lie. <laughs> exactly. Which, by the way, they did. Um, This is, though, is what Jesus is primarily referring to when he says, my peace I leave with you, the reestablishment of peace with God, because from that peace flows all the rest of what I'll talk about here in a minute. Jesus continued in his earthly life to live within the unbroken peace he enjoyed with his father from all eternity. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of everything that was going on in his world, Jesus maintained his peace with the Father, which is something that the first Adam was unable to do. Jesus succeeded in doing it. All right? When Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden, their peace with God was broken and was made evident, like I said, by two things. They hid themselves from God and they were driven from, from the communion or tabernacling with him when they were expelled from the garden. Garden was the original tabernacle where God and man dwelt together, right? So they were expelled from communion with God. Because of sin, man had to be driven from the absolute holy presence of God and barred by the cherubim from returning lest they die. This truth of separation from God was physically manifested in the temple where a curtain 30 feet high and 3.5 inches thick Embroidered with what? Two cherubim. Separated man from the holy presence of God. And it was that curtain that was torn when the chastisement of our peace was paid. It's kind of cool. The driving away of sinful man was, in fact, God's mercy. Do you understand that? We often equate God as capricious and vindictive and oh you sin out of my sight because we're fallen people and we often do that that was mercy you know why because god's holiness cannot coexist with darkness and the moment that darkness entered the light would consume it and destroy it and cause it to cease to exist and so god in his mercy and his love moved god man away from his holy nature with the intention of bringing them back. All right? So don't ever think of God as being capricious. Even in the driving us away and out of the garden, that is his love and his mercy, lest we die. Because of sin, then, man had to become completely separated from God to keep from suffering his just wrath. And as long as man remained stained by sin, there could be no peace between God. You ever wondered about this? Man was play, faced with some kind of a, a dire circumstance. And we lose track of this because we're in church all the time and we think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm forgiven. 
it's all, everything's good with me and God. Do you understand what you've been redeemed from? I think it's important for us to think about this. Since all that is touched by sin must die. Everything that's touched by sin must die. That's the biblical mandate. If there is a consecrated vessel in the temple that is defiled, it is thrown out and destroyed. It cannot be brought back in. It has to be made new. And since sin is the ultimate affront to a holy God, to die in sin is to enter eternity under the wrath of God as an enemy of God. So, look at it this way. If sin has touched your life, you have to die. Body of sin is sold, the body, the, body is, the body of flesh is sold under sin. It must die. That's why we are renewed like Jesus was at his resurrection. So, Unless there is a way after you die to be resurrected, you die in your sin. Thus, the curse of death would be the eternal condition of those who die in sin because it is necessary or uh, it is the necessary or inescapable consequence of sin. In short, man would eternally remain in enmity with God because of sin and its destructive effects. Nothing you can do. Good luck. The required solution, a man like Adam who would take on the fullness of the fallen condition of Adam and yet in that condition live without sin. Jesus suffered every shortcoming that we do except he had no propensity to sin. He got tired, he got hungry, he wept. He was bound by all of the the conditions that we are physically because of sin and yet he remained without sin. The substitutionary sacrifice of that man was required by which the wrath of God towards sin was satisfied and the resurrection from death of that man as a new creation by which the eternal consequence of sin was broken and peace with God was restored, which required a complete absence of sin which is commiserate with a new creation. Who can do this? Who can do this? The Old Testament is full of people trying And did they succeed ever once? No. So God took it upon himself to do this for us. Therefore, because no man could satisfy the wrath of God, since all men without exception were born into sin, God the Son, the second person in the Trinity, listen to these scriptures, made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearances as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wow. And after having offered for all, uh, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Therefore, according to Paul, since we have been so justified through faith, What is the word? We now have peace with God. And we have confidence now to enter into the most holy place. When we invite people to worship, come, draw close to God. Why? Because the tent, the the curtain has been removed. There's no separation. You are made righteous because of Jesus Christ. You now have peace with God and are reconciled to God. Oh, wow. This is why the birth of Jesus 
This is why at the birth of Jesus, the host, the heavenly host saying, glory to God in the highest. And on those and peace to those upon whom his favor rests. He's come to reconcile us to God. Now that we've been reconciled to God, now that the, ter- the, the, the curtain in the tent, uh, the temple is broken or torn, we can now find, uh, start to see the cascading effect of the peace of God now permeating our existence. And one of the things that we have now is peace with ourselves. And this is a big one, guys. This is a big one in today's world. Because through Christ, having been justified and made holy by faith, we now have peace with God. We can also have peace with ourselves. Remember, after having disobeyed God, Adam and Eve not only hid themselves from God, they also covered themselves with fig leaves because they were ashamed of their own nakedness. In hiding for God, as we have said, Adam and Eve revealed that the peace with God they once enjoyed had been broken. However, it was also revealed that they realized something was broken within themselves. Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever symbolically covered yourselves with fig leaves? I'm going to tell you, most of us have. The the biblical concept of peace actually carries, as, as I've said before, the biblical concept of peace actually carries the notion of completeness, wholeness, and harmony in order, which in turn speaks of purpose and meaning. And without God, we don't have purpose and meaning, and we don't have wholeness. And we cover that, whole, uh, that, that gap in our lives in so many different ways. Because this peace with God has been broken, mankind lost a sense of personal meaning and purpose as well as a sense of internal wholeness. Man finds himself in conflict with himself. I'm going to skip over this part right here. But in Jesus, there is meaning and purpose. There's wholeness. But after the fall, men and women are born into this state of purposelessness. And they struggle throughout their life to find it. They're also born with a sense of condemnation. And they, a lot of times you can't even identify it. Right? I mean, you just kind of feel uneasy. There's this sense of, I don't know. But men, so many, uh, in so many ways, try to fulfill that, that lack and that void. Can you think of the ways? Let's just think of a few of them here real quick. We self-medicate. Men run to pornography. We have personal conquests. We hide ourselves and find our identity in making money. We live through other people. We fantasize about ourselves being what other people are. We conform to social ideologies because we think in it we can find meaning and purpose. We hide behind masks, attempting to be anything other than what we, we really, what we feel that we are. And there's so many other ways. And this is a hallmark of our society right now, yes? Unfortunately, apart from God, mankind will always feel condemnation and will therefore never find peace in any of these things. They're temporary because once the medication wears off, where are you at? Same with yourself yeah no matter how far you run where do you find yourself right back with yourself so find once again we find that jesus the prince of peace is in fact the solution because we are justified by the finished work of jesus we now have peace with god as we've just said 
There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. How many of you condemn yourselves? Even as Christians, how many of you do this? You know, that's usurping the place of God to do that. Do you know that? Only God condemns. And you know what? If you're in his son, what does the scripture say? I do not condemn you. So for you to say, oh, wait a minute. You have no idea what I've done. So let me just heap on all this stuff and take all the peace that your son just died for me and get rid of it so that I can feel condemned. You see how heinous that is? We don't think about that. We think that there's some kind of something going on there that that's our right place. That is to remove ourselves by force from the place that God has put us in. We are freed from sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ and we figure out ways to heap more condemnation upon ourselves. You're free. You're at peace with God. Be at peace with yourself. And again we say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those upon whom his favor dwells. And the last thing is, is that we have peace with our fellow man. Adam and Eve. God confronts them. What have you done? Well, the woman that you gave me. And then in the curse, what does God say to the woman? Your desire now will be to usurp your husband's authority. So there's conflict now, one with another. People are at odds. Have you ever just seen people just lose their mind because somebody slowed you down on an intersection? <laughs> Guilty. I was talking to my wife. We were driving back from the Bay Area yesterday, and I was like, can, can you believe these people are given driver's licenses? We lose our mind over things. Why? Because... There is this innate hostility that is formed in fallen culture with people between you and I, between us and the world. And it shouldn't be that way. Scripture says is that as, long, as, as, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. And if we are at peace with God and peace with ourselves, should not that peace just ooze out to other people? Should not we just live in peace and offer that peace to those people that jump out of their car and run up next to you and bang on the window and say, you know what, you're an idiot for doing this and this and this and this back there. And you roll down your window and say, you know what, is there a way we can reconcile? I, I'm, I'm sorry. Do we ever do that? No. <laughs> no. We're balling up our fists. We're ready to jump out. Reaching in the glove compartment. Sign language. Yeah. I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> but because of the peace that God has given us, that we have reconciled ourselves, that, that he has reconciled us with God, and he has made good on that statement, does he intend to dwell again with us? He does. We have now peace with God. Therefore, we have peace with ourselves. The medication, the, the self 
self-inflicting things that we do. All of that is gone. We don't need to do that anymore. We can take the fig leaves off. All of the things that we hide ourselves behind, we can take away. We can stand before God as who we are because we are not standing before God as ourselves. We are standing before God in His Son. And I used to say this all the time. We, we trip and fall and we do something stupid and we stand up and we brush ourselves off real quick and we look around to see if God saw us and we say, did you see that? And he goes, no, all I see is my son. Because there's no more condemnation. Ever think about this? When your child falls and bangs his head on the coffee table when he's your child, do you go, you, you're hopeless. You'll never walk. <laughs> what do we do with, with ourselves? We trip, we fall, we bang our head. Oh, you'll never walk. What does the father do? Come here, son. Pick you back up. Let's try this again. Just put you... Come on, let's walk. I'll walk with you. Do you see God that way? Maybe it's time. Maybe for some of you here today, it's time to see yourself at peace with God. But we can also be at peace with each other because when we're at peace with ourselves and we're at peace with our God, we can do things like this. Love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you. We can turn our cheek to those who slap the one. We can give our shirt to those who maliciously take away our coat or vice versa. We can go the extra mile with those that ask us, to go just one. We don't turn away from those who want to borrow from us. We lend to the poor. We sympathize with those around us. Why? Because we have a God who through His Son, Jesus Christ, bore the chastisement of our peace and we're at peace. So let me offer to you the peace of God. You need something? Here. Oh, you're blaspheming, you're, you're cursing me to my face, I bless you in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus loves you. Because we're at peace with ourselves. We don't need to strive and try to do the one-upmanship. Yeah? Jesus did these things because he was at peace with his Father, because he was at peace with himself. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He touched the leper and those things that were considered unclean. He showed kindness and mercy to prostitutes and adulteresses. And he healed Gentiles even on the Sabbath. He did all this because of who he was and whom and whom and, and whom he was. Or however. <laughs> because he was God's and he knew that. Yeah, whom's he was. That was hard to say. Whom's whatever. So in conclusion, look at that. I stopped before 12. Let me just recap real quick. I'm going to go all through this all over again. No, I'm not. Paul referred to the gospel as the gospel of peace in Ephesians. And that is what it truly is. In the garden, man by his sin broke the harmonious peace that uh, originally existed between God and himself and as a consequence the peace that he had that had existed between he and his wife the peace that he had with himself and additionally the peace that he had with the rest of creation were broken since apart from God there simply is no peace 
Because man was powerless to restore that peace, he was destined to remain estranged from God and separated from his presence forever. Only God himself then could restore that peace. And since a man broke the peace, it would take a man to restore the peace. Thus it was prophesied at the time of the fall that the offspring of the woman would do exactly that. Accordingly, 700 years before the birth of that offspring or the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words for us, to, for, uh, unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Upon fulfilling the fulfillment of this prophecy, when Jesus the Christ child was born, Luke records the host of heaven singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those upon whom his favor rests. And then Jesus before his passion said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world does. But I give you that peace. However, I need to say this. The, the angels declared something. We always say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. That's not the right translation. It's glory to God in the highest heaven and peace, upon, peace to those upon whom his favor rests. If you're outside of Jesus this morning, if you don't know this Prince of Peace, there is no peace. And strive as you might and cover as you can and anesthetize as you might and run to and fro and look for peace wherever you may find it. You will not find it. There's only one place that you can find the peace that, that the Bible speaks of. The peace that's in our heart from the time that we are born. Because we are born in the image of God. And there's this longing in our heart to be restored back to that place. There's only one place to find it. And that is in Christ Jesus. Who was the Prince of Peace. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those upon whom his favor rests. Amen. Amen. Thus endeth the lesson.